So this is, in fact, my grandmother's Bible. My father gave it to my grandmother in Christmas 1980. And just this week, as Father Paul and I were discussing this series and this week's sermon in particular, I took it off the shelf and thumbed through it. I found a note in the Bible from 1983 where my grandmother took notes on a sermon I preached. In case you're wondering, I was seven years old in 1983 (laughs) preaching this sermon. And you will be glad to know that it was a sermon from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, which I'm sure all of you have memorized, but here's how it goes. Happy is the man who seeketh wisdom. Now remember, that's a seven-year-old preaching that text. Happy is the man who seeketh, or that seeketh wisdom. And my grandmother had written that in the margin. For some reason, she used a highlighter at the beginning of her reading. So the book of Exodus is mostly orange highlighter. I don't know if you can see this or not, but the whole book of Exodus is pretty much marked in this way. But she quit doing that, and afterwards, apparently she had a ruler because the rest of the underlining is, is quite carefully done and neat. So I, I guess she was like moved by the Spirit in Exodus, and after that, she tapped into her Presbyterian <laughs> Bible reading skills. The, there, there's so much about it that was astounding. I mean, there were notes from sermons other than mine in the text. Of course, there were clippings from newspapers, bookmarks, a Motel 6 reservation card. There was a a particularly troubling news clipping that was tucked into the book of Judges, which was very fitting because that's the most troubling book in the Bible, I think. There were notes as she, and then at some point she gave this to my grandfather, so you can tell some of the notes are his and some are hers. But it's been a fascinating few days kind of going back through this text and kind of following her footsteps as she's reading. And I was raised in a community, in a family, where the Bible was at the heart of the spirituality. So we went to church, as you've heard me say, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday night, every week. And once a month, we went on Friday night because you don't want to get you know, too out of rhythm of going to church. And then every spring and every fall, we had revivals that lasted at least two weeks, 14 nights straight, or it didn't count as revival. Like you, you didn't have like weekend services. You went for long stretches of time. And of course, reading the Bible was core to all of that. But there was never any teaching about how to read the Bible. It was just assumed that you would figure it out on your own, right? And that you would, you would kind of make your way. And the world has changed so much since then. I, I think that many of us, even people who would, we think of ourselves as devout Christians, we don't realize how much the world has changed in the last 30 years around reading scripture. So think about this. Like my grandmother, the, the church I was raised in, reading the Bible not only was something tactile, I mean, this book that she read with, well, when Exodus, a highlighter, everything else with a pen, she was taking this book to church multiple times a week and sitting through people working through the text multiple times a week. We don't do that anymore, right? You, you come to church, I come to church once a week for an hour, hour and a half. If I'm speaking, hour and a half. If Father Paul is speaking, a little bit less. Then the... We, and during the week, if we read, we usually read off of screens. Right? I don't know your personal habits, but as a rule, that's what people have done. There's nothing wrong with that, but it shifts the way we relate to Scripture. So we're around it less. And a lot of us, certainly not all by any means, but a lot of us 
are, are kind of detoxing from abusive uses of Scripture. And at least we're around people who are. And there's a, there's a kind of larger cultural shift reacting against the me and my Bible approach. Just this morning on Facebook, which I have no idea why I risked going on Facebook before a church service, but just this morning someone was sharing on Facebook about the ways in which the, the reason we're in the situation we're in culturally, like in America, is because of the way we read our Bibles. And that is a widespread sentiment that people read the Bible in some kind of fundamentalist way and in a deeply individualistic way so that my reading of the Bible becomes authoritative. You remember the old song, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. If, if I had the Bishop Ed anointing, I would sing it, but I do not, and I'm not going to. But you probably remember it, right? The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone upon the word of God. See, I almost started singing. Colton, you encourage that. Don't do that to me. The B-I-B-L-E. Right? And there's something about that that's right and good. Right? There, there's a way in which I think being people of Scripture is right and good. But you can hear in that song a couple of problems. One, that's the book for me. Right? And if you've been in circles where there's a little bit of toxic Christianity, like your spidey senses start going off, like, hold on, like with the that's the book for me business. Because often that's a prelude to, and I have some Bible verses you need to hear so I can straighten your life out, right? And so often that's the book for me. The subtext is to have authority over you. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I get it right, you get it wrong, so you should listen to me. Right? Maybe we'll add another verse or two before the day is over. And then the next line, I stand alone upon the word of God. Right? Almost this kind of defiant individualism. Like, I don't care what the church says. I don't care what you say. I stand alone upon the word of God. And so I want to affirm and celebrate the, the, the ways in which that kind of Christianity, certainly the Christianity that shaped me, was deeply biblical but I want to challenge the ways in which it became biblicist. It focused on Scripture in ways that I think are actually false to the spirit of Scripture. And Father Paul said, we've, we've over the years, have taken time here at Sanctuary to talk about, be, you know, be careful how you read, right? attend to how you read. But as Father Paul also said, I wonder if what we communicated without intending to was, it's not worth the trouble. You don't really need it. You don't really need to read. I hope that's not what we communicated, but I, I want to make sure that isn't what we're communicating. Right? That reading scripture is definitive for the people of God, but we need to make that subtle shift back to being quote-unquote biblical, but not biblicist, where it's not me alone on the Bible speaking authoritatively over you, but it's us together being drawn to the word that we hear together and moves us toward Christ-likeness. So one, one way of thinking about this is we need to make a shift from my Bible upon which I stand to prove I'm right to the scripture that we hear in order to be made like Christ. And, and that may seem subtle, but it really isn't subtle. And it makes all the difference in the world. The Bible is not my resource so that I can win all the arguments with the people who are wrong on social media. Right? It's not so I can set everybody else straight. This text is our text, and not just those of us in this room. This text is the text of the people of God. And we hear it rightly when we hear it as one of the members of the people of God. Are you with me so far? Okay, 
So all of that is just prelude, not even introduction. That's prelude to the introduction. Now, let's, my time starts now, right? We're going to actually, actually begin. So one, one way of getting at this is a passage that's actually underlined in my grandmother's Bible. In 2 Peter, in the King James phrasing, is no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Let me see your hands if you've heard that phrasing before. No prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. That's what the King James is there for, to be puzzling. And kind of beautiful, but also puzzling. No no prophecy of scripture is any private interpretation. Well, in in the history of the church's reading, that passage, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, has been taken to mean three things that are interlaced. The first one is that the writers of Scripture, the prophets who spoke, did not speak out of their own hearts, but were moved by the Spirit of God to speak a revelatory word. So when when it says, not of private interpretation, one of the meanings is people spoke the word of God. It wasn't their ideas. It wasn't their philosophy. It wasn't their beliefs. It was revelation. God moved them. The second thing it was taken to mean is that you shouldn't read those words in ways that divide the people of God. Now, of course, you can read Scripture in ways that are prophetic, and that can be divisive in the sense that there's a kind of cutting asunder of lies and truth and darkness and light, a cutting through the confusion. But you you can't read in ways that destroy community. That was another way in which that passage was, was taken. And the third way, and this is, I think, an important one, is that... Every scripture is best interpreted in relationship to other scriptures. And you've probably, I hope, heard this before, because this is a deeply foundational commitment for all Christians, that the only way to rightly interpret scripture is, one, you have to interpret it in ways that are, in, are good for the whole community, right? trusting that God is speaking, but you also have to read it in conversation with what is called the whole counsel of God. You can't take a passage out of context and force it onto someone's life situation. The question is not, what does this particular verse say, but what does the whole scripture say? What does the whole counsel of God say? So the best example of this is Jesus in his temptations, right? The devil is throwing scripture verses at Jesus. It is written. And how does Jesus respond? By drawing up other passages to say, well, that's a misreading. Like you've, you've isolated a text, but and on its own, it may sound as if it means that. But if you put it back in conversation with the whole counsel of God, if you don't allow it to have a private interpretation, then you start to see what it, what it means. Right? So there's a, there's a fundamental distinction here that I want to introduce you to as we move toward the sermon today. <laughs> and that is the difference between what the Bible says and what the Scripture teaches. And here I'm drawing on the phrasing of Willie Jennings, who is one of important theologians in our time. He was shaped in the black Baptist tradition, a very biblical, biblocentric tradition. But it's a critical, crucial distinction between what the Bible says and what the scripture teaches. That just because you can isolate a text or a handful of texts and say, well, look, here's what the Bible plainly says. You have to learn the mind of Christ in the scriptures. And this is one of the places we went wrong. We entrusted everyone with their own Bibles, right? This, as I said, this was a gift from my father to my grandmother. And my grandparents owned 
a couple dozen Bibles. I owned, I mean, I would pretty much every year at my birthday or Christmas, someone gave me a Bible. When I graduated middle school, I got a Bible. Graduated high school, got a Bible. Graduated college, got a Bible, right? That, I mean, it, we're, we gave Bibles as gifts, and in some ways that's right and good, but in other ways what we were essentially saying is, you'll figure this out on your own. And the truth is, we didn't. Like, that experiment backfired on us, right? We kind of gave everyone a Bible and figured that, hey, they've got the Holy Spirit, they've got the Bible, what could go wrong? Well, it turns out a lot can go wrong. Like, a whole lot can go wrong. But we don't want to simply deconstruct from that, and we don't simply want to detox from that. We want to come back to the scripture and say, okay, teach me. This is, this is one of the things that I think is striking. about. I remember I was watched, do you guys remember the Sandra Bullock movie? Oh, what was it? Where she's in space. Why can I not remember the title of this movie? Gravity, gravity. So Julie and I, we'd gone to the, to the movies. Some of you have heard this story before. And there's a scene in there which she, her character, needs to pray and realizes that she can't. And she says, no one ever taught me to pray. Gosh, I can't even talk about it now without it gutting me. And, and Julie can testify. Like, I fell over on Julie in the movie theater and started sobbing because it touched this nerve in me. Like, that's what I grew up with. I grew up with a Christianity that gave me a Bible but didn't teach me how to read it. Pressured me to pray, but didn't teach me how to pray. It did, did not show me the ropes and thought I would figure it out. Turns out, I didn't figure it out, right? That's just not how it works until you get a guide. There's a passage in Acts. Philip has been preaching. He, his path crosses with this Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the text of Scripture, reading Isaiah. And Philip asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Does anybody remember what the eunuch says? How can I unless someone guides me? That's what was missing from the Christianity that I knew. I would assume I will know it best if no one guides me. That I will have the clearest understanding if I don't have any other voices. But the truth is God has given us scripture and given us each other. And scripture is purposely designed by God to be difficult, so we'll have to rely on each other. So we have to turn to each other. So we have to listen. We have to get the, the spirit of that Ethiopian. How can I understand unless someone guides me? So all of that said, now we're to the sermon. Really quickly, I'm going to talk about a handful of voices that I think show us how to handle the scripture. Right? The first one is Rowan Williams from the book that Father Paul mentioned. Just one line from, from the book. And this is, this is typical with Rowan Williams in which each sentence it may seem Simple and almost offhanded, but there's an incredible wisdom in it. Look at this line. The Bible is the territory in which Christians expect to hear God speaking. The Bible is the territory in which Christians expect to hear God speaking. Now notice he's made that distinction between the Bible and Scripture I made a moment ago. He doesn't say Christians go to the Bible to find God's word. He says it's a territory that they inhabit expecting God to speak. And notice he says it's a territory they inhabit. You don't strip mine the Bible. Right? It's not a resource. You don't go and take what you want from it. It's a territory. You live in it, and God might show up at any time. 
Right? This is one way, I think, of thinking about what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is being on edge, not because you're terrified by God, but because he might show up at any moment. Right? Your, your senses are heightened. Right? You know what it's like when you realize that there's a snake in the house, but you're not quite sure where it is. Right? Do you know how your senses get heightened? Right? When we lived in Florida, one morning we woke up before church and this gigantic tree frog had gotten into our house and was jumping around like 30 feet at a time in our, in our house. There's a way in which that heightens your senses, right? Really gets the blood working before a church, right? Turns out it was a poisonous tree frog and I got it in my eyes, but that's another story. Um, I thought I was you know, bravely rescuing the family and really I was just putting everyone's life at peril. I also released it thinking I was being generous. I later found out that the state of Florida said, under no conditions, release it back into the wild. I was like morally obligated to euthanize this frog. I didn't do it. So, but you, you, that, that's what it means to read scripture. You come to scripture like a territory and there are wolves in this territory. You, you, you can't come into this territory unless your senses are up. But you don't strip the territory. You don't cut down all the trees and take out all of the minerals use it the way that you want. Like you, you have to inhabit scripture with a respect for what the territory is. And think about how different that is from the B-I-B-L-E is the book for me. I stand alone. Think about the difference between standing alone on the authority of the word and inhabiting a territory where at any point God might speak. You're listening. Remember the line that Father Paul mentioned, the Christian life is a listening life. And for so many people, the Christian life is just a speaking life. Why be a Christian if you can't correct the people that are wrong? Why would I bother with all of this if I don't get to be right? right? No, no, no. The Christian life is a listening life, right? So Rowan Williams first. The second voice is a much older voice, St. Athanasius, who's an Egyptian, early church father, died in the 370s. Listen to what he says. I want to move through these quickly. But for the searching and right understanding of the scriptures. Notice searching. It's like a territory. You've got to move around in it. It doesn't present itself to you. A lot of us have been taught that the truer something is, the more obvious it is. That if it's really, really important, it will be undeniably true. But that isn't true. God calls us to searching. God is a searcher. The Spirit searches all things. He calls us to search. But the searching and right understanding of the scripture, there is a need of a good life and a pure soul. And for Christian virtue to guide the mind, to grasp, so far as human nature can, the truth concerning God, the word. One cannot possibly understand the teaching of the saints unless one has a pure mind and is trying to imitate their life. Now, some of you are despairing right now. He's not saying you have to be perfectly pure. Others of you are thinking, oh, well, then I have no problem at all. But the point he's making here is that you can't come to Scripture in ways that are separate from the kind of person you are and the spirit in which you live. The way you read the Scripture is telling us more about you than it is about God, always. Even when you're right about God, the way you're reading it is revealing your heart or mine. It's revealing what's in me, what I want to see in Scripture what I want to hear in God speaking. And so he says, you need to have a desire to be purified. You need to let God work on you. One way of putting it this is, if you go to the Bible so you can get truth to use against other people, then you're not true. You yourself are false to what scripture is. 
So the, the goal of scripture is not to compile truths, it's to become true. I'm preaching better than you're shouting. Like the goal is not to find truths about anything. Political issues, sexual issues, theological issues. The goal isn't to find all the truths. The goal is to inhabit that territory long enough to become like the God whose territory it is. And if you have all of the truths, but you're not true, that's what it means to be satanic. That's the definition of satanic, to have the truths, but to use them in ways that are untrue. So the goal of reading scripture, first and foremost, is God, make me like you. Make, make me pure as you are pure. Purify my heart so that when I'm reading scripture, what's coming through, your word is not distorted by what I want to say or what I want to hear. So the second, the second voice also from around the same time, died in the 370s, is Macrina, St. Macrina, who's the older sister of Gregory of Nyssa. And she is on her deathbed in this scene. He's come to tell her that their friend Basil has died, thinking he's going to surprise her. But when he gets there, she, she surprises him because she's dying. And on her deathbed, she gives him a teaching. And in the teaching, she says this, we are not entitled to assert whatever we want. Now, this was 370 in Cappadocia, so Turkey, all those centuries ago. Guess what they had a problem with then? People asserting whatever they wanted, right? Think about the book of Judges. People did what was right in their own eyes. They just didn't have Facebook to amplify it. <laughs> we are not entitled to assert whatever we want. Instead, we use Holy Scripture as the rule and norm of every doctrine, necessarily fixing our eyes upon it and accepting only that which is in harmony with the goal of those writings. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say, this will change your life if you understand it. Like, we're pretty familiar with the middle line. We use Holy Scripture as the rule and norm of every doctrine. But what we normally take that to mean is, I'll find some truths, I'll resource them out of the Bible, I'll compile them one after another, and convince you that I'm right, because I've got a bunch of Bible verses that prove the point. But notice, that's not what she said. She says, the Bible is authoritative insofar as we accept what is in harmony with the goal of those writings. What is the goal of those writings? To make us like the God whose word they are. How do we know where scripture is authoritative? What's changing you and me to make us like Jesus? Anything else that doesn't lead to the transformation of lives into the image of Jesus, anything else is not authoritative. I don't care if you've got 20 dozen verses to prove the point. If the way you're doing it doesn't show that you're turning to Christ and others are turning to Christ, it isn't authoritative. It's, this is not a text that you can resource in that way. You have to be conformed to Jesus. And if you wonder, am I being conformed to Jesus? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Does your life look like that? Read 1 Corinthians 13. Does your life look like that? Does your life look and feel and sound like Jesus? Does mine? Because that's where the Bible's authority is sown, right? I am hurrying. Third, third voice. This is St. Maximus, who lived almost 300 years later, died in exile having had his tongue cut out and his hand cut off, because that's what Christians do to each other sometimes. Please don't get any ideas. <laughs> Just, I... I, I a few years after he died, the church kind of realized its mistake. But anyway, Maximus is talking about reading scripture and listen to his 
wisdom here. Hence, a person who seeks God with true devotion should not be dominated by the literal text, lest he unintentionally and unknowingly receives not God, but the things that refer to God. That is, lest he feel a dangerous affection for the words of Scripture instead of the word. Man, if that doesn't cut to the quick, I don't know what does. There are a whole lot of us, a whole lot of things in me, that love the Bible because I can leverage the Bible's authority to get my own authority. I can appeal to the Bible authority when really that's just me asserting my own dominance. And what Maximus says, and it's important to remember, this was said in the ancient world. These are not new problems. What he says is it's possible to fall in love with the words of Scripture and not love the Word himself. And it will dominate you. And I don't want to present a dire picture, but so much of what we think of as American Christianity is a Christianity that's biblical, but not at all godly. It's fallen in love with the words of Scripture, but it doesn't know the spirit of the word. And we have to turn from that. So he goes on, instead of for the word, for the word eludes the intellect which supposes that it has grasped the incorporeal word by means of his outer garments, like the Egyptian woman who seized hold of Joseph's garments instead of Joseph himself. Man, what, gosh, such a stunning image. What he says is when you fall in love with the words of Scripture, God just leaves you with his cloak. You're standing there holding Joseph's garment, and Joseph is gone. And you are Potiphar's wife. It's adulterous. What you're doing is adulterous. When you fall in love with the words of Scripture, you fall in love with proving other people wrong by the way you use the words of Scripture, or you fall in love with doing that to yourself. Either way, you don't grasp the word. It's striking, of course, you know, with Jesus, the woman touches the hem of her garment, and, uh, the hem of his garment, and is healed. So it's possible to read these words and the life of the word to come through the words into you. But it's also possible for you to end up holding somebody's cloak. And Jesus be on his way. Right? One more voice. This is from John Scotus Eriugenus. Eriugenus means born in Ireland. So we've gone from Africa to Cappadocia, now to Ireland. So Eriugenus says this it is nowhere more proper to say, it's a prayer. It is nowhere more proper to seek you than in your words. So too there is no place where you may be more openly found than in them. There you prepare spiritual banquets of true knowledge for your elect, making a passage therein. You minister to them. There's nowhere for you to be found more readily or more openly than in your words, and you make a passage therein. How many times in your life have you heard people refer to passages of Scripture? Do you know why we call them passages? Because God passes through them. And we're meant to follow him through them and be changed. So here's my five and a half minute sermon now. The gospel text I read you today, the disciples are in the boat. They're rowing against the wind. And Jesus is on the mountain watching and praying. And the text says that he came walking on the sea and he wanted to pass them by. But they see him, and they freak, thinking it's a ghost. And he says, do not be afraid. 
He comes to them and gets into the boat with them. Now that text, I mean, you can preach it in a kind of superficial way, which is, you know, Jesus comes to you in your storms. But that's not what the text is doing. There's a, there's a deep, deep, deep tradition here of passages that lead up to this. So notice that line, he wanted to pass them by. And if you don't know scripture, you think, well, that's, that's kind of rude, right? What do you, I mean, they're in the middle of rowing and you just gonna walk by? I mean, that seemed, you talk about big timing someone, right? Like you guys can hardly row the boat together, all of you in the boat. I'm just gonna walk by you. But that's not what the text is saying. Passing by is language in scripture for revelation. So in Exodus 33, when Moses desires to see God's glory, God says, I will hide you in the rock and I will pass you by and speak my name. And you will know. And this is what leads to Moses' face being lit up. So one of the ways you have to learn to read scripture, and this is what I want, I hope this infects you. You have to learn to read passages. You have to let the text carry you. And sometimes that's, there's a small movement. A few weeks ago, I talked about Psalm 23, where we begin with, the Lord is my shepherd. Then we start talking directly to God. You are my shepherd. And then we end with saying, goodness and mercy, follow me. We move from third person to second person to first person. That's a passage. And something's happening to you in the middle of it. As you read, as you let yourself be led, you're being changed. And you go from just talking about God in the third person to wrestling with God to becoming like God. The same thing happens with the whole of the Psalms. You begin with, blessed is the man who abides in the counsel of the godly, who's not like those who are scornful. But we end Psalm 150 in absolute praise. So how do we get from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150? A lot of lament, a lot of repentance, and a lot of turning to the wisdom of the people of God. There's a passage in Psalms. Gregory of Nyssa, the younger brother of Macrina that I mentioned earlier, he talks about there's a passage from Proverbs through Ecclesiastes into Song of Songs. And he says, all of us start in Proverbs, and we think we know how the world works. And then we have children, or then we get older, or then we pastor a church, or whatever. At some point, life smacks us in the face, and we end up in Ecclesiastes. And we're like... Vanity of vanities, right? And we you know, get the vanity of vanities tattoos or whatever we need in that midlife crisis. <laughs> but if we, if we keep inhabiting the territory and let the Spirit lead us through the territory, Gregory says, we end up in Song of Songs, which is saying to God, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. So you move from the presumption of Proverbs, I know how things work, to the wilderness of I don't even know if there is a God, and if there is, he's pretty bad at his job, to kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. That's a passage. And if I wanted to take two more hours, I could show you dozens and dozens and dozens more, but I want to show you this one in our gospel. The disciples see him, and they're afraid. The backstory there is the story, these stories. Job, do you remember what happens with Job? His life is falling apart, Literally children dying, friends turning against him. And then God shows up. And Job had told us all the way back in Job chapter 9 that he knew what would happen if God showed up. He said, if God shows up, he will show up in a storm and he will crush me. So at the end of Job, you know what happens? God shows up in a storm and Job falls on his face and says, 
I hate myself. I despise myself. I repent and I despise myself. And God doesn't respond. So there's an encounter with God, a face-to-face encounter. Job is flattened by it. He's humiliated by it. He's ashamed of it. But God doesn't respond. And then we have the story of Moses in the wilderness, the burning bush. He hears the voice of God. He draws near and the text just says, he's afraid to look. He's afraid to look. And even after God has said, I've called you to this, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and and performs miracles. Throw your staff down, it becomes a snake. Put your hand in, it becomes leprous. Put it in again, it's clean. You know what Moses says? Send somebody else. It's not for me. And then Moses on the mountain, when he sees God's glory, he can't see God's face, he has to be hidden. And when God passes by, Moses' face is radiating, but it alienates him from the people. And from that point on in his life, Moses drifts further and further from them and then dies alone. The same thing happens to Elijah. The same thing happens to Isaiah, although there's some development. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, the train filling the temple, and what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. But now there's a little bit of a move. He sees God. He's afraid of God. He acknowledges his own sin. But notice, he doesn't say, I hate myself. He says, I'm sinful. And there is a world of difference between I hate myself and I'm sinful. But he also says, not send someone else like Moses. He says, send me. So even though he's intimidated, even though he's overwhelmed by it, he still says, send me. And then Ezekiel sees the Lord. But this is where the change really becomes obvious. Ezekiel is by the river. Suddenly God is present to him. And Ezekiel does not. He falls down, but he does not say anything about himself. He doesn't say that he hates himself. He doesn't even say he's a sinner. And you know what the difference is? He saw in the midst of the throne someone like the Son of Man. And for the first time in all these stories in the Bible, when people are seeing God, they're seeing a human being in God. And it changes how they respond. And what happens in our gospel today is that that passage that started with Job and moved through Moses and moved through Elijah and moved through Isaiah and moved through Ezekiel of seeing God, being intimidated, falling down, despising ourselves, repenting of our sins, instead of all that, God just shows up in full humanity. And the disciples say, they're afraid. Who is this? And Jesus says, it is me. Don't be afraid. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation, listen to this. This is probably the last sermon I'll ever preach at Sanctuary. I'm so glad that some of you guys were here to to hear this. Listen to this, right? This is the end of the Bible, right? This is the, the Revelation. I turned to see the voice that had spoken with me. And being turned, I saw seven candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. His head and his hair were white, white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, his feet like brass, as if burning in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. By the way, that's one of the things the church fathers say, is that scripture is like many waters. Every verse has many meanings, many waters. His voice like many waters. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth a sharp sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, the whole Bible is about this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he who lived and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is why we read the Bible. To learn to come up against God, the face of God, and realize the face of God is a human face. And it's the face of a human being who says, puts his hand on us and says, don't be afraid. Read the Bible until you get into that presence. It won't happen at once. Sometimes you're going to read the Bible and you're not going to hear God at all. Sometimes you're going to read the Bible and you're going to respond like Moses or like Elijah or like Isaiah. But the point of the passage is that you just keep being led until suddenly you're in the presence of the one who says, get up, face me, look me in the eyes, don't be afraid. And in that moment, you're not in love with the words, you're in love with him. And in that moment, you're not worried about being right, you're becoming true. That's who we are, that's how we read. Next time I promise to be about 20 minutes shorter.